This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 186. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman, and today I'm also joined by Jacob Paulson. Howdy, Roo. Oh my gosh. It gets better every time with you, doesn't it? <laughs> All this fancy Wyoming lingo and whatnot. <laughs> <laughs> Howdy, Roo. Hey, folks. Uh, thank you for joining us today on this episode of the podcast. Today, we got all kinds of fun stuff to talk about. We're going to talk about a little bit about some wound, wounding ballistics. A uh, really interesting article to share with you from Dr. Sidney Vale, MD, uh, trauma surgeon that has a lot of experience in this regard. I just thought there was some really good stuff there I wanted to share with listeners on the show today. But first, we're going to bring on Gary Ramey of Honor Defense, uh, manufacturer of the Honor Guard 9mm pistols. And he, he asked if he could come on and share some, some information with us. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about the Honor Guard uh, 9mm and also some of the reported uh, drop issues. And uh, we'll get some uh, things clarified, I'm sure, with Mr. Ramey from Honor Defense. So we look forward to having him on. He is actually in the green room waiting to come on as we are doing this. But first, today's episode is brought to you by Guardian Nation. Folks, if you've heard it many times, you probably won't stop hearing about it, but if you aren't already a member of Guardian Nation, why not? So go check out guardiannation.com today, figure out how to get signed up so you can take advantage of all of, all of the great benefits that come with being a member of the nation at Guardian Nation. So check out Guardian Nation, guardiannation.com. Jacob, anything special you want to add to that? Oh, well, way to put me on the spot. Um, you know, I would just say that we have some really good plans for 2018, how to make that membership even more valuable and more beneficial. But ultimately, it comes down to having the right gear and the right training. And so as a member of Guardian Nation, we want to make sure you're outfitted with both the right knowledge and the right stuff. So check it out today. Nice. And then also today's other sponsor of the episode is CERT or the Next Level Training CERT Pistol. And we are big fans of the CERT training pistols here at ConcealedCarry.com and the Concealed Carry Podcast. Go check one of these babies out at uh, concealedcarry.com forward slash cert, S-I-R-T. We'll get you a link to where you can check out all the details and uh, figure out how to pick one of these babies up. We have one of the most competitive prices on cert pistols in the market. So go check it out. So we appreciate our sponsors of the podcast. And uh, without further ado, Jacob, uh, unless you have anything else you want to say, should we bring Gary on and, and talk about the uh, Honor Guard? Let's do it. Okay. So here we go. We'll, we'll get... Gary brought in here <clears throat> and in just a moment he should appear there he okay there he is so hello Gary you there uh, hey guys how are you doing we're doing great hey thanks for joining us on the concealed carry podcast today uh, you bet thanks for having me we appreciate it yeah so uh, Gary you are the president uh, are you also I guess the founder then of uh, honor defense you know, uh, yes, but I also mop the floors on weekends and clean bathrooms on Sundays. So, uh, <laughs> you know, when you're in a small company, uh, you know, you, you wear a lot of hats. Yep. Indeed. We do know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's for sure. That's an understatement. Uh, now, how, tell us a little bit, a little bit about Honor Defense, uh, about the company itself, its founding. Uh, there, you know, some people may be aware of you or your history, but chances are there's still many out there that are not. 
Well, yeah, it, it's probably the majority that don't. We, we've only been shipping less than two years. So, you know, we're about as young as, as you can get. There's, um, just to put it in perspective, there's about 580 semi-automatic pistol companies that manufacture in America. So two years ago to today, we were tied for the smallest at zero. And uh, we started shipping in 2016, and uh, the product was pretty well received. And we zoomed up to about, um, now I would say top 25, but I'll give a couple of guys some credit and say top 30. But so, you know, we climbed right up there and um, just a couple of very basic premises that we're built on. One is uh, 100% American uh, materials and parts. Um, other companies will look you in the eye and with a tear in their eye and tell you how they're all American. And they're buying from foreign subsidiaries that have a USA organization that then outsources back to Korea or India or wherever it might be. But we don't do that. We refuse. Uh, our materials are American, and they're not DFAR nation either, which is can come from uh, Turkey, Egypt. Uh, I think there's 13 countries on that list that are called domestic. Uh, every gun is plus P proof tested. Every gun's assembled by a veteran. Um, but in our design, we uh, we started with people that carry a gun for a living, and so our firearms for concealed carry single stack nine, I and mean, we just simply have more features than anybody else from the custom texture to two back straps, ambidextrous magazine release, ambidextrous slide catch, ambidextrous manual thumb safety if you want it. Uh, sights that are backwards from everybody else's, so they're snag-free coming out of the holster, but you can rack on that rear sight one-handed if you want. Serrations over the top like Zev does to Glock. The list goes on and on. Uh, maybe most importantly, no trigger pull or tools needed for disassembly. So. Uh, it took a long time to design. We spent a lot of time and effort on it, and we think we've got a great gun. And, um, you know, I know there's an 800-pound gorilla in the room, so let's <laughs> jump on it. Um, sure. We've submitted our tests. Um, first, we tested every gun internally. Uh, every, all models we've tested internally. We also submitted uh, to the SAMI ANSI National Institute of Justice testing uh, that was done by an outside testing service. Um, specified by California. They've got a few, I think four or five facilities that they approve and uh, will recommend or will allow. Uh, and we use one of those. And we passed all the drop tests uh, with flying colors. Uh, it's a pass-fail. And we passed them all. So um, believe me, we saw that video as well. It was just last week. We saw that as well. And, um, you know, everybody says, "What you know, what are you going to say? And it's like, well, you have to take a measured approach to it. First of all, you got to figure out what's going on. You've got to find out why does it conflict with what the scientific testing has shown, um, you know, and, and dig in. And, and that's what we're doing. Um, so we're doing that. There's not much we can say because we're trying to figure out and bridge that difference between what we saw in the video and the scientific tests that um, uh, others have done. So, we're not ignoring it. We're addressing it. Um, just we don't we don't have a good answer to tell everybody other than we've passed everything, um, and we're seeing some some tests that are outside of uh, Sammy ANSI National Institute of Justice testing, and we're trying to bridge it. Yeah. So so for those who are are watching and and uh, or listening and not you know this is all out of context. You kind of don't know what's going on. You know, I, I don't know how many weeks ago, but a week or two ago, 
I think was kind of the first reporting, um, you know, from, from Patrick to, to suggest that, Hey, you know, this, this gun may not be drop safe. And he had a video and, and, and demonstrated that. And it's, you know, one, one is, could be an outlier. So I, I think it didn't get a lot of momentum very quickly. And I don't know how quickly you guys saw it, Gary. And then, and then I think it was Jeremy over at truth about guns, uh, dot com that kind of did a test and he had a video and and was kind of pounding on it with a with a mallet and uh, it was it, you know appear apparently appeared to be discharging and i think that's probably I, I suspect that's when it really started to get on your guys radar it's like oh what one is an outlier but two is a pattern and and so i think you know from from my end from my perspective and, and now with riley and i having gone out and destroyed a 500 hundred dollar gun last week ourselves um you know i, I think a true measure of a company is not their ability to prevent bad things from happening, but what they do when bad things happen. Um, certainly, you know, we, we sell products as a company too. We've, we've had to recall things. And so it's, it's just, you know, the nature, nature of that beast. And so I think, you know, what, what matters most here for anyone who's listening is not necessarily what the issue is, but what is being done about that issue. So I'm, I'm really excited to hear, hear what you're saying, Gary, and, and, and have you talk through that. Well, I appreciate that, you know, and, and in reality, because um, we, by the way, we knew, I think within 24 hours, or maybe even six hours of that thing going live because we got our, our phone started ringing and we got emails. So we watched it, um, you know, and we thought, holy crap. Uh, so we started jumping on it. And of course, everybody again wants you to say something, but, uh, or say something that, that is improper. And we didn't do that. It ticked off some folks because you're right. It's how you respond. And we're, we're responding in a very measured um, exacting approach because uh, you got to know what's going on first before you can address it. So uh, we've been doing that. And, you know, one of the misnomers that we see is, um, let's be honest, no firearm is drop safe. I don't think anyone would get their favorite brand, pull the kids out of the driveway in their Christmas pajamas and toss a gun in the middle. I mean, whether it's a Glock, a Smith, a Ruger, Whatever you wouldn't do that. That's unsafe handling of a gun, and it might go off. Um, and we've talked to a lot of experts in this field, uh, including law enforcement, outside testing services, and, and they've all been consistent. Um, any gun mishandled will go off. It just will. So um, I'd like to encourage the viewers: don't do this at home. You know, just don't don't. Hit guns with hammers. Don't uh, don't drop them onto concrete. Uh, there's Sammy Ansi standards and scientific labs that do that, and um, that's who we're engaging because they can help pinpoint uh, exactly what what what's going on. So uh, we're working on it. Uh, we're not ignoring it. And um, as soon as things are are sorted through, um, heck, we'd love for you guys to come to our offices and see what it is that that we found and and share what it is we're going to do about it. Yeah, for sure. And we would definitely uh, take you up on that if uh, that, op- that opportunity presented itself. Hey, folks, uh, we got a bunch uh, tuning in on Facebook now. Uh, we've got a few questions. So actually, we've got one question here from Kevin who asks, can Gary explain FIST or F-I-S-T on the Honor Guard pistols? Yeah, I would love to. Actually, it's one of my favorite business stories. Uh, we started the company instead of, of um, starting with, Hey, what's cool and what do we like? We started with people that carry a gun for a living. So we asked a gentleman from Fresno PD who had a career in the military and was now with Fresno as a range master armor 
uh, an ASAC from the DEA out of Miami, uh, Command Master Chief Britt Slabinski from uh, DevGrew. Some of the viewers might know it as the, you know, the side name of SEAL Team 6. Uh, he had 20 plus years. And then also Juliana Crowder, who started A Girl and a Gun. And, and that's where all the features and benefits uh, came from, uh, for people that carry a gun for a living. So make a long story short, Britt and I are walking through um, SHOT Show, and he's walking me through the process that a special operations person would go through in, in combat. And, and he, it came down to, if I have to pull my handgun, I'm in trouble. You, you got that. I'm going to paraphrase it. So, Fred, if you're listening, please don't get mad at me. But, you know, he walked me down through the process of, you know, if I've got to pull my handgun, Gary, I'm in trouble. You got that, right? Yeah, Brett, I got that. And uh, if i got to pull my handgun, and most likely they're getting close to me. You got that, right, Gary? I said, yeah, Brett, I got that. So he kept this up. And every time I'd say, yeah, I got that, Brett. Yeah, I got that, Brett. And finally he said, because, you know, if they're on top of me and the slide comes out of battery, uh, the gun's not going to work. You got that, right? Gary, and I said, yeah, I got that. And by the way, I'm a range rat. Uh, I was a target shooter in the 70s. So he said, do you really got that? And I said, you know, Britt, I guess I really don't. So we stepped into, the, into a booth, and he pulled out a pistol, jammed it in my ribs, and pulled the trigger, and it went click. And then he jammed it harder, and it didn't go click, you know. And he said, you see, the gun won't go if that slides out of battery. He said, could you build um, – could you integrate a standoff into that, into that grip frame to keep the body from hitting the slide? And I said, sure. You know, so we did that. And so we tried to come up with, um, you know, what do you call it? It's, it's FIST, which stands for Firearm with Integrated Standoff. And so that's really how it came about. It was, it was at a request from uh, Command Master Chief Slabinski. But, mm-hmm. um, and by the way, when you're a range rat, you don't know the, the tactical use for a firearm. I mean, we all think we do. We all watch the movies, but um, at the end of the day, the guys that carry a gun for a living know, and it's, it's been well-received by uh, law enforcement and others that have seen it. Um, it. It's funny. They all go, cool, finally, somebody gets it. And then they see the sights and they go, thank you, because sights are supposed to be snag-free coming out of the holster, not going in. So, you know, we talked to experts that carry a gun, and we listened, and we integrated that into the uh, design. Oh, thanks for sharing that story with us. That's, that's a great story. Um, speaking of sights, uh, Jacob, and I see Jacob just went and grabbed his uh, Honor Guard uh, pistol that, that we bought for the little bit of testing that we did. Um, but, Jacob, what you don't have there is that I actually have the rear sight. So, yeah, I know you put it in your pocket when we were when we were testing the sucker, and so I am rear sightless. <laughs> I forgot that <laughs> until I got home and and I pulled it out of the pocket. So what Gary's talking about, by the way, is that the uh, those that are looking at the camera, um, the uh, that sloped, uh, I guess the right side as you're looking on the camera, that's the rear of this of the sight, and the flatter other section on the other side, that's the front of the sight. So you're looking at it. Here's the ramped rear. There's your dots. It's got a little U for a notch, which works. It aligns pretty nicely with the uh, dot in the front uh, post. So yeah, they're they're def- you're definitely right as far as being snag-free coming out of the holster or out of a pocket or whatever it is, and yet still having something that is usable in the event that you needed to rack one-handed or something, which you know is probably not terribly likely for most folks, but it's always nice knowing that you can do that. 
Well, by the way, worth mentioning that um, the dovetail on the rear is the same as the uh, Glock 42-43, and so is the cut right. on the front. So uh, for people that want tritium sights, there's a lot of options available from, you know, whether it's Trigicon, Ameriglow, Trueglow, XS, Night Fishing. There's, there's some great ones out there. Yeah, yeah. We noticed that as we were evaluating the pistol. And so last week, just uh, for folks, if they don't know, if they didn't see the article that we posted on our site, uh, we did take the the pistol at Jacob. And I'll go ahead and switch my camera view so you guys can see. Jacob is admiring his Honor Guard 9mm pistol right now, comparing it to a 43. Is that what that is? Yeah, I was checking the sights. Yeah, I got the 43 next to the Honor Guard. Really. Yeah. And so he picked that up brand new, just bought it from a local dealer. We took it to the range. We initially ran 200 rounds through the gun. Just, just a, well, number one, I had never actually shot, shot one yet. Uh, I was not that familiar with the honor guard pistols. I know Gary, you had been on my radar for some time. We've talked about it a little bit, but never really connected. Uh, so we sort of did an evaluation and a review of sorts on it. I enjoyed shooting it. You know, one initial thought I had was looking at this, this, the slide, the size of the slide, the mass of that slide on the gun. I thought, boy, this is a lot of height and weight above my hand, you know, as I'm shooting it. It's not as low in the hand as, as a 43 is. However, you know, we, we hear this talk all the time with different guns, including SIG. SIG's a big one. If, you know, you, you got the SIG guys and the Glock guys. And, you know, Glock, Glock guys are always commenting about those SIGs being a mile over the hand. You know, talking about the height of that bore over top of the hand. Um, but it, that doesn't necessarily mean anything if, I mean, until you put it in the hand and you actually shoot it. So the Honor Guard actually shoots really nicely, in my opinion. Uh, I, you know... We ran 200 rounds through it, and I thought it shot really nicely, Gary. Well, thanks. We, um, and you know, it's funny. It almost doesn't matter what you do to a, any handgun. Half the people are going to love it, and half the people are going to hate it, is one of the things that we found. And uh, when it comes to accuracy, uh, you know, we've been fortunate enough to, that Gun Test Magazine did a comparison of us with the 43 and the Shield and the Walther, and, and we came out uh, as most accurate. So we've been fortunate about that. And, you know, when it comes to weight, um, that weight helps keep the recoil in check. It's not, it's not always your, your spring on your guide rod. You know, the weight helps temper your recoil as well. So, um, you know, we tried to pay attention to that. Every firearm can be improved. And, uh, you know, you just, you just keep tweaking and tweaking and, and uh, you never get it right. There's still engineers at Beretta working on the 92. And so right. uh, it just, it never ends. Yeah. Well, perfect Gary, trigger is the holy grail. Yeah, yeah, yeah no kidding. Um, and I and I actually have a comment about the trigger, but I was gonna I wanted to come back and and kind yeah. of make a one one final uh, clarity or uh, you know I guess ask one final question and and get your input on it. As I was, you know, when, when we first started hearing about these issues with the Honor Guard, and I was, you know, I was trying to follow all the comments and feedback on social and just, you know, trying to get see what everybody was saying about it. Um, I, I got the sense, and I'd love to hear your input on this, that, you know, there's a lot of people out there who would say, hey, it passed, it passed the industry standards. Um, don't drop your gun. You know, move on in life. What's the big deal? And then there's kind of people in the opposite camp who are like, hey, you know, great that it passed industry standards, you know, yeah, I don't plan on dropping my gun anytime soon, but 
if given the choice between a gun that is potentially drop safe and one that is potentially not drop safe, I'll take the one that is drop safe. You know, what, what are your guys' thoughts? And you know, when all this kind of came to a head, you know, what, what kind of, you know, where did, where did that put you as far as trying to decide how to, how to approach this? That is a great question and how we viewed it as, um, again, we've passed all the tests that the industry have, but if there's an opportunity to pass a more stringent uh, testing standard, we're all for it. You know, we're all for it. Um, and that's what we're going to strive for. You know, the one thing I would say is when somebody calls and says, hey, is your gun drop safe? My answer is, and it's accurate, n- no gun is drop safe. People that think they've got a drop safe gun are, are kidding themselves. They don't. Um, you abuse a, any gun to a certain point, it's going to go. And all you got to do is Google accidental discharge uh, and type in any brand name you want, and you're going to see stuff on the internet. So um, it's not an excuse for any gun company. We're going to try and overcome what we saw on the, uh, on the videos. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you saying that. And that's, that's, I w- that's why I want to ask that question, because I think some people you'll want to get accusatory and say, well, you guys only went as far as you had to. Um, and I, I'm glad to hear you say, hey, we, we thought we'd gone as far as we could go. It turns out maybe there's still room for improvement, so we're working on it. And I think that's a really important uh, distinction. Well, I think it is, you know, and, and um, SIG probably tests their guns more extensively. And, and I don't know this for a fact, but, um, you know, we all know each other in the industry. I have a very high regard for SIG. And uh, personally, I think their guns were safe beforehand. And I think they've made changes uh, to make them even harder to discharge. Um, but any gun will discharge if you drop it from the right height, from the right angle, uh, whatever it might be. And, and we're not making excuses. We're going to keep going uh, until we make it as safe as we can make it. Yeah. Um, I, wanted, I did want to come back to the trigger a little bit because, you know, in my experience last week when me and Riley put a couple hundred rounds through it, the number one thing I had a hard time adapting to was the trigger because on the majority of my striker fire guns, the reset is relatively short compared to the honor guard. I imagine that's, that's a piece of feedback you get quite frequently. You know, what, what do you say to people who say, Hey, can you shorten the reset? Well, we can, and we're working on it. Uh, yeah. Uh, frankly, I think the reset is, um, there's worse and there's, there's some that are a whole lot better. Yeah. Um, so sure. we're working on that to make it, make it better. One of the things we pay a lot of attention to in regards to the trigger on a striker-fired handgun, uh, you've got to balance out, you know, the guide rod is trying to keep, uh, you know, the slide where it is. And the uh, striker and your pressure against that is trying to pull the slide back, you know, because you're keeping them in balance. So uh, we really targeted making our gun smooth to rack. And the resulting trigger pull was seven pounds which is where we wanted it. Um, but, you know, we had, we've got a reset that we think is a little long um, and we're going to try and shorten it as we go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, and it's really where the trigger bar intersects with the sear and that whole interaction. So we're, we're addressing it and looking at uh, what we can do to improve that. Mm-hmm. You know, the, I think the way I thought of it or described it is that it's, to me, it's kind of somewhere in between a lot of the common guns that I shoot and a double action only gun. Uh, it's, and, and really that's probably not a fair comparison even still because DAO guns are, are really, really long because you got to go all the way out for that trigger stroke. 
but uh, I, you know, it's a matter of getting used to it. I, you put several hundred rounds through it. I mean, we did 200 rounds just the other day. And by the end, I was no longer having, you know, short stroking issues because I was used to it. So it's a matter of getting used to. It's whatever you're used to, whatever, whatever you like. But definitely a shorter reset, a nicer trigger. No one's ever going to com- complain about those sorts of things. I do have a question about the trigger, Gary. And um, maybe you can, maybe you can't answer this. But in our own testing, and as we looked at our slow motion video that we took, uh, you know, from what we could see, it looked like that when the gun was able, you know, capable of firing, uh, whether that be from a hammer or from being dropped, that it was firing because the trigger itself, that mass of that trigger was coming back um, because, you know, due to that, that sudden jolt or shock. Uh, obviously, a lot of other manufacturers deal with that potential issue by adding a trigger safety, a little uh, you know, nub or whatever you want to call it that is in the middle of the trigger that traps that trigger and keeps it from being able to move rearward until, uh, you know, and, and that, that little nub is going to be a lot less uh, mass. So it's not able to be, uh, you know, shook or jolted uh, to the rear. Um, SIG has obviously had to deal with this. Uh, they, they try to design a striker fired gun without a uh, trigger safety on the trigger itself. So I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that, why you chose to go with the design that you did, and, and if you see any inherent issues or anything that maybe will be changing potentially uh, with this uh, recent uh, development. Yeah, and, and that's one of the things we're looking at is do we need to add that blade, trigger blade to it? Um, maybe, <clears throat> excuse me, maybe we do, maybe we don't. We're not sure yet. Um, we've been studying, um, what is it, 10,000 frames per second slow-mo? Uh, here all day uh, to see how parts are interacting, you know, because it's always, it's just not the trigger. It's the trigger bar. It's, it's the trigger bars and hitting the sear sears connected to the uh, striker. So there's a lot of things uh, that go on in a striker fired gun. Um, is it the trigger mass? You know, I, I think SIG had lightened theirs um, as one of their responses and take some weight out of the uh, trigger bar. Um, but you know, we've got to figure out if that's, what's causing it. Yep. Gotcha. Well, I know you got some, uh, good engineers looking into the whole situation and, uh, you, you're working to, to get a solution soon. So we wish you the best of luck in all of this. Hey, we appreciate it. And, uh, when we do have that and we expect a, um, we're isolating what's occurring very quickly when we get to that, if you guys would like to Come on down to Georgia. It's probably warmer here than it is where you are. Uh, come on over. We'd love to have you. All I right. think, yeah, I think we'll probably take you up on that invite. We appreciate it, Gary. You bet, guys. Thanks for having us on. Thank you, Gary. Take care. You take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All righty. Well, uh, there you go, folks. Uh, you heard it uh, uh, firsthand from Gary, uh, president and CEO of Honor Defense, the manufacturer of the Honor Guard 9mm. Um, appreciate those of you that have jumped in and are viewing this now live on Facebook. A uh, bunch of comments, you know, folks have, uh, you know, dropped in there. We've got Greg from Kentucky, Aaron from Ohio, Kevin also from Ohio, um, Joseph from North Carolina. That's great. And Ralph uh, says he's from uh, New York. Great to have you, Ralph, checking in. James, also from uh, North Carolina. Um, yeah, f- f- those watching or viewing or listening, uh, your thoughts on any of this? I know we just let Gary go, uh, so you know you, you may may have questions that maybe you would w- like to direct to him. 
but definitely would love to hear your guys's comments on the whole thing. Uh, if you have any at all, uh, we, we just felt like it was fair to bring Gary on and give him that chance to, to, to talk about the issue. Obviously it is an, an issue. Uh, you could talk about, you know, all the different tests that have been, you know, that these manufacturers, they all p- go through a lot of the same testing protocols. Uh, and they all, you know, generally all these guns pass those protocols and this maybe is a test that's outside of those protocols, you know, dropping it from six feet high or whatever it is on the concrete or smacking the rear of your gun with a hammer. Uh, what do you think about all of this, uh, Jacob? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm inclined to say that it, industry standards do exist generally for a reason. And so if I'm buying a gun that's past these industry standards, then I should have a relative amount of confidence in that firearm. And I think that could be said of the honor guard. I think that a lot of people out there carry this gun and that they have a high degree of confidence and that, that, that confidence is rightly placed. But, and I think this was kind of the main point that I was trying to get to. And I think that Gary, you know, confirmed or agreed with, or however you want to say that. And that is that if there's an opportunity to improve on that, then we should. And I think that if this is something that they had been aware of uh, when they were first manufacturing this gun, they would have addressed it then. Uh, but it's only come to, to light or, and, and they've only been made aware now. And so now they're addressing it. And, and I think that's, that's the main point. Um, and that's true of any industry, whether you know, we're, we're talking about cars or anything else. I, th- I think the second thing I would say, and I said it already when, when Gary was with us, and that is that the true measure of a business or a company is, is not their ability to prevent things from happening. While that's always a bonus, the true measure of business is what they do when those things happen. Um, you know, look, look at Toyota, the largest car manufacturer on planet Earth, and they had a huge recall. They had a huge safety issue several years ago, and they, they took care of it. They bounced back. They're fine now. And obviously, the smaller the company, the harder it is to deal with those kinds of things financially. Um, but hopefully, you know, this, this is something that you know, these guys are able to work through and, and bounce back from. Because I, I think that, you know, this, we're, I'm all for capitalism and, and more competition is better. We're going to have better firearms out there when we have more players making guns. And so I think all around uh, where I'm at right now is this, is this is positive and I'm glad to hear we're moving forward. I'll tell you one other thing I think this is doing for the industry is when we had the SIG issue take place with the P320s, it was like, oh my gosh, you know, P320s are not safe or what do we do? And then you have one guy, this Patrick guy, who's like, huh, if, if the SIG could have this issue, maybe other guns do too. So he starts pulling guns out of his safe and testing. It's like, oh, hey, I found one more. You know, we're now in a point where one is an outlier, two is a pattern, right? So we're going to have, I think, in the, in the upcoming weeks and months and years, uh, more and more people testing guns differently and, and may or may not change the industry standards, but we probably are going to overall increase the quality of the guns on the marketplace because of these things. Yeah. You know, and I thought I, I just wanted to add a little bit of another observation of mine. Uh, whether you place any value in this or not is up to you. But I was just thinking, you know, I've seen some comments too in the last week. I mean, we're talking about two striker fired guns here. We're talking about the P320, which I'm, I'm carrying. And by the way, folks, this is a non-modified, non-upgraded P320. Okay. So this one is the drop you know, issue gun. Uh, This is the flat apex trigger in it, uh, which supposedly I've heard makes it less susceptible. I haven't taken this out and dropped it, but I'm, I'm still carrying it. Okay. And maybe I'm stupid. I don't know. But from what I saw, I saw that it looked to me that a lot of the tests that these uh, 
tests that we saw videos from different folks from that it took multiple times a lot in, a, in most cases uh, to get this gun to discharge. We found that to be true with the uh, honor guard pistol as well. And it's like, you know what? I might drop my gun one time and I think it's v- highly unlikely it's going to discharge when it's dropped. Uh, now one of, on the flip side, I think it's also fair to acknowledge that if you have an issue like this, even if it's a failure outside of a normal industry recognized industry standard testing protocol, it's fair to recognize that folks want to have confidence in what they carry. And that that's, that's, that's fair. And that's, that's, that's reasonable for people to desire that from a carry gun, especially if they're carrying it in a manner where if there was an issue, it could cause them some serious harm, injury, or potentially even death. So, yeah, we want to have confidence in in our pieces, in our guns. Uh, so anyway, big, big issue here. The point is that we're learning from this. The manufacturers are learning from this. And I think the industry as a whole gets better and stronger because of it. Like Just like you said, Jacob. Yep. Good stuff. Hey, folks, what do you guys uh, think? Those of you watching and viewing on uh, Facebook Live right now, uh, appreciate you all tuning in. Hey, and while I'm at it, if you wouldn't mind, you know, it's real easy just to hit that share button on this uh, Facebook Live video. Share that with all your friends and family if, if you think this is of value to them as well. All right, so let's get into some other topics for today's uh, episode, Jacob. I've got a question here. And actually, you responded to this gentleman via email already, but I thought this is worthwhile bringing up in the podcast. And I'm sure you know what I'm referring to now. The title of the email, Round in Chamber, and this is from Damien. And he asks, as a longtime listener of the show, I can't begin to tell you how great it is having you guys along for my daily commute. You have the perfect balance of education, fun, and politics without getting overly partisan most of the time. Smiley face. Wink. (laughs) Keep up the great work. In a recent podcast, you guys discussed whether or not you should have a round in the chamber when storing your firearms. It seems that most people I talk to do just that. However, there is one aspect of this that we may want to consider. First responders, namely firefighters. A round in the chamber can cook off in a fire, and if it does, it's just like pulling the trigger. This isn't a concern for those with beefy gun safes, but if you store your guns in a typical sheet metal lockbox, like the portable gun safes, that cook-off could lead to an injured or even fatally wounded first responder. Love the show, Damien. Interesting question. A very, very fair and valid point to ask and bring up, and I'm glad he did. So let's discuss. Yeah. So I'll start off with this. Certainly know, first and foremost, that a round cooking off, and that's, a, I suppose we could call it a technical term. It is, it is an official term that we use to refer to this idea of a round charging, going off when it's heated to a certain temperature degree or, or whatever. And there's been tons of extensive testing done on, on this. And what I can tell you is that if it's not in the chamber of a gun, then it's not dangerous. Um, there's, there was some really impressive testing that was done uh, recently where they, I, I was watching this YouTube video, maybe I can find it and drop it in the show notes here, but uh, they, they loaded over, they tested over 400,000 rounds of ammunition in five or six different scenarios and lit them on fire and to see what would happen. And they definitely cook off, but unless they're in the barrel of a gun, they, they're not dangerous. You could stand five, six feet away from 10,000 rounds ba- you know, burning in a fire. And if you're wearing a firefighter's uh, standard kind of you know, uniform outfit, then you're going to feel those impacts, but they're not going to hurt you uh, because the nature of the way the ballistics work. 
So, so first and foremost, know that we're talking about the danger related to a round sitting in the chamber of a gun and it cooking off because now it's in the right environment to, to have the right spin and you know, whatever other fancy ballistic things I don't understand, but it's going to, it's actually going to you know, be, be go at a de- deadly velocity, right? So the premise is I'm, I'm sleeping in my bed at night, it's middle of the night. I've left my gun in a gun safe, uh, you know, next, next to my, my bed, or maybe it's not, maybe it's just sitting on top of the nightstand because I'm crazy as far as I'm concerned. I think you should keep it in a gun safe, but anyway, it's it, it's there and it's got a round in the chamber and there's a fire and I run out because uh, I don't want to burn to death. And the firefighters uh, arrive on scene and as pr- potentially the concern is as they're working through the fire, uh, a round cooks off in my gun, whether it's in a safe or not, and potentially goes and can, could hurt somebody. So a, c- a couple of thoughts that I think are relevant here. And, and Riley, I'll throw it to you. First one would be um, certainly you know where the gun is positioned relative to where people would be. So I, I, my bedroom's on a second floor. All the bedrooms in my house are on a second floor. And so the way, the way my gun sits next to my bed, uh, it, even if it discharged, and even if it wasn't in a gun safe, it's going to go through some house and maybe my neighbor. I mean, it's, it's going to go through a lot of things before it could hit somebody is what I'm trying to say. It's not, it's not like it's on the ground floor. It's not like it's pointing toward the doorway. Um, I, I think that that, I'm not saying that makes it fine and dandy. I'm saying that's, that's something that makes a difference. And obviously, you know, he mentioned how, how good the gun safe is. I think that's another factor. And Riley, you might have a better sense for this, but most, most decent gun safes, handgun safes, are built from, you know, 20 to 16-gauge steel. And I think the one I use is 20-gauge. No, excuse me. The one I'm using right now is 16-gauge steel, but some of the smaller, lighter ones might be, might be 20-gauge. I'm sure there's cheaper ones out there than that, but I think a decent safe, that's, that's probably what we're talking about. Uh, you know, what, what difference is that going to make if it cooks off? I think any of those mild steels that a lot of these handgun vaults are made from are probably not going to stop a bullet. A single sheet, probably not going to stop. Could it reduce the velocity substantially, make it less lethal? Yeah, perhaps. But I wouldn't count on those little handgun vaults being, you know, making it suddenly safe. Uh, I I would say that a a, a legit, you know, rifle safe. You know, we're talking. You know, it's got it's got fire uh, uh, paneling inside of it. You know, like the safes that are rated for so many degrees for so many minutes. Uh, that one's a lot less likely, especially with a handgun. You're going to be able to ever penetrate that with a handgun round. Uh, there might be some rifle rounds that might be able to penetrate, but you're probably you got less of an issue, I would say, with a real legit solid rifle safe. But these handgun vaults, which I do keep a lot of my carry guns in the little vault uh, at the ready, you know, where it can be quickly accessed. I think a key there is just being conscient or con- mindful of <laughs> of the placement of the gun and the in the safe rel- relative to areas of the home. Uh, for me, everything that I have is positioned on an out on an outside wall, an exterior wall. Uh, I've got a house that's lined with with old, you know hardy brick um it's probably gonna be okay for for most cases i I would say if a round cooked off in my handgun in one of these handgun vaults um it's also a pretty you know unlikely scenario but it is one that's worthy talking about i certainly don't want to see any firefighters get hurt because of this being a potential issue yeah 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 i i think uh I don't know that I have more to add. I think those are some good considerations and, and things to think about. For yeah. me, I would say my odds of needing that gun quickly are probably higher than the odds of that gun reaching a temperature in a fire such that it could cook off and then actually go and hit a first responder. That, that's where I'm at. Uh, both are pretty remote. 
Um, but I'm going to call the second yeah. more remote. By the way, it would also be advisable, I think. I think this would be good practice that if if you have to evacuate your home due to a fire, meaning Take you're on the scene yeah. and uh, you got firefighters maybe going in or they're around the house uh, fighting that fire, you may want to tell the fire chief or whoever's in charge on, on site to say, hey, you know, I've got ammunition and stuff. And, you know, let them know where those potentially dangerous items are. Uh, they can be mindful of that. They can implement that in, into their strategy of how they're fighting that fire. Yep. Good, good input. Good thought. Yeah. All right. So let's get now to the uh, other thing I want to talk about today. And I'm going to go ahead and share my screen. This is an article. I actually came across not, not, not quite a year ago. This this actually article was written in January of 2016. Um, and so I, I this was shared on my Facebook feed and I was like, Oh wow, I forgot about this. I had a bookmarked. I just hadn't, I'd kind of forgotten about this article. It's written by Dr. Sidney Vale, MD. He's a uh, trauma doctor. Okay. And uh, this article is fantastic. It says nine millimeter versus 40 caliber. Uh, and by the way, he references another article, Stopping Power Myths, Legends, and Realities, which I've got that pulled up here as well. It's an older article talking about stopping power myths, legends, realities. When it comes to claims about effectiveness of handgun ammo, don't believe the hype. Both these articles are really great articles, and I would encourage you to read both of them. They'll be in the show notes of today's uh, uh, episode of the podcast. would definitely encourage you to read these. They're not terribly long, and they're packed with tons of great authoritative information. And that's what I love about these two articles. And so let's go ahead and go into these a little bit, uh, shall we? Um, So these are both on policemag.com. And this first, this first article, which actually is, is the second one that's that's published here as far as the timeline is concerned. But, but uh, this is where I'll spend most of my time be, uh, focusing. It talks about understanding stopping power, okay? And that actually is, is a reference to this earlier article as well where he talks about kinetic energy and really kind of puts a kibosh on, you know, this myth about stopping power and kinetic energy and what, whether that means anything or not. Um, that kinetic energy, as he gets into it here, it's, it's one thing if that bullet is penetrating, uh, you know, into the body. And if that bullet is a 30 millimeter cannon round, yeah, that's, that's like, that's, <laughs> that's going to leave a mark, right? If it's a 22, yeah, is it deadly? Sure. Does it have a lot of energy? No. Does a nine millimeter have a lot of energy? Not really. Does a 45 have a lot of energy? Not really. Again, <laughs> we're talking about, I mean, when we compare handgun rounds to handgun rounds, we're talking about the difference between a couple hundred foot pounds energy and a couple hundred foot pounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not talking about, you know, uh, 2,600, you know, foot pounds of energy that a 30-06 or, or some other rifle might have. You know, we're talking about a very different concept of power here. And, you know, 9 millimeter versus 40 or even versus 45 doesn't really make that much difference. And that's kind of his point here in this part of the article. So I, I, when I, when I talk to people about this, I often use this metaphor. I'll say, listen, would you rather get hit by an F-150 or an F-250? <laughs> you know, and it's like, you know what, both getting run over by an F-150 or an F-250, they both would really hurt. Um, I mean, maybe you can make the argument that the F-250 would do a little bit more damage 
but they're both trucks and when they hit you it's gonna hurt it's gonna it's gonna have a relatively similar impact on the human body and that's how i feel about a lot of these handgun rounds it's like yeah i get it that you know that the 45 is is a little bigger but it's it's still the f-350 and I, i'm convinced that the f-150 will still effectively stop people <laughs> yeah well yeah <laughs> so i like that that comparison even though it's not a perfect comparison but that that is uh pretty enlightening so he he takes the uh, numbers here, okay? Nine millimeter and forty caliber. All right. Here's the caliber or the size, the diameter. Uh, nine millimeter, point three five five inches. Forty is point four. Velocity, similar velocities, depending on the weight of the bullet, right? And expansion. This is kind of telling, I think. Expansion is very similar. You, know, you have a bullet that starts out about four hundredths of an inch smaller in the case of the nine millimeter from the forty, and it ends up being four hundredths of an inch smaller in expansion, according to his top line, you know, top uh, dead upper threshold of those numbers on expansion. So it's just very similar in terms of how they perform. Uh, they generally get about as big, about three quarters of an inch big with good quality uh, hollow point self-defense purposed ammunition. Right. Let, yeah. Let, and I think, I know that, I think that this guy buries the lead. So I'm going to kind of reverse this conversation a little bit because I think that all of this doesn't make a lot of sense unless you understand why it matters. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the physiology of stopping a threat. Let's start there. What does it take to to stop a threat? And when we say stop a threat, what, what Riley or I would mean is that the perpetrator, the person who is intent on doing me harm is no longer capable of doing me harm, right? They're no longer capable of, of le- you know, leaning toward me and trying to stab me, or they're no longer capable of shooting back at me. So when we say stopping a threat, we're mean making that so that, that that threat no longer is a threat, right? So what is that, what does that require? When we're talking about gunshots, what, is, what does that take? Well, a, a lot of people are inclined to say, well, if you, you know, if you just shoot them enough, they'll bleed out. And, and it's true. I mean, eventually, if a person does bleed out, that will cause the, their, their system to shut down and there will no longer be a threat. But for an average human adult, it takes two to three minutes to bleed out enough to, to shut down the system. And so that's a long time for someone to still be a threat, two to three minutes after you've punched a couple of holes. So uh, in, uh, beyond you know, bleeding out in two to three minutes, Riley, what is the other faster method to stop a threat? Right. Well, it'd be turning the lights off is one term I like to, to use. You know, you, you shoot somebody in the head and let's get more specific. You shoot somebody in the brain stem and the brain stem is that part of the brain that controls all of the automatic functions of our body, our breathing, our heart, you know, everything. Uh, you, you eliminate the brain stem, the lights go out, you're done, Right. Uh, this is an interesting paragraph right here. You kind of see in the upper middle portion of the screen. He says, in a headshot, the amount of brain tissue disrupted by a bullet produces varying degrees of inca- incapacitation unless the brain stem is hit. So when c- comparing the 9mm to the 40 Smith & Wesson, size is not a huge factor. If both expand to the maximum diameter based on bullet design, there is not a large enough difference to account for a larger degree of tissue injury. The difference being between non-expanded bullets is small as well. So that's just really interesting. You know, that the amount of brain tissue disrupted by a bullet produces varying degrees of incapacitation unless that brain stem is hit. And the brain stem, by the way, is a fairly small part 
in the rear lower portion of the brain, almost directly behind your nose. You go straight to the nose, you're going to get to the brain stem, right? Uh, that's, that's interesting, right? And then in this other article uh, published back in 2013, uh, he talks about, uh, I have seen a 22 caliber bullet completely incapacitate someone in a 45 ACP failed to achieve that result. People and animals shot with 10 millimeter rounds and 357 SIG rounds have continued to run from the police. I have seen unseen as a tap. I have been unseen as a tactical metal medical provider when a suicidal person saw, shot himself in the head with a 45 Colt round, resulting in instant death. And I have seen the same results in suicides that used smaller calibers, including 22, 25, and 32. I have seen people hit with 9mm, 40, and 45 without so much as staggering or slowing their verbal or physical activities. The point is that unless it hits specific parts of the body or the brain and does a lot of damage in the process, then we don't know exactly what what we're going to get. Mm-hmm. Right from the performance of that bullet. So yeah, and, and to put that in context, so what what difference then does the bullet make when we're talking about what impact it has on the body? Well, there's two things, right? One is velocity; it's the amount of energy that is transferred into the body, into the tissue when the bullet makes impact. So you have velocity; that's a factor, and certainly there's a difference in velocity between nine millimeter, forty, forty-five, whatever. In addition to velocity, you have size of hole created right? How, how much tissue can I touch as I move forward into the body? How, how, you know, what, what is the, the size of my hole, basically, is the easiest way for me to think of that. So those are the two factors, right? That, that's what varies from the 22 to the 380 auto to the 38 special to the 9 to the 4357 and the 44 magnum and the 45. Like, that's the difference is how much velocity is being, is, is being transferred onto the human tissue and how big of a hole do we have opportunity to cause damage with. That, and the, big, the size of hole matters because it, A, can change what we hit when we impact target, and it matters because it can change how quickly the bleed out occurs based on the size of, 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 of the hole, right? The, and the right. amount of blood that flows. So, so the, the point now, kind of going back to the dimensions we were talking about earlier, when we were talking about the difference between the size of the uh, 40 caliber and the nine millimeter, uh, when we're talking about the diameter, they're, they're virtually the same, 0.355 inches versus 0.4 inches, very similar. Yes, the 40 is a little bit bigger, but we're not talking about a significant amount. Uh, we're talking about uh, right around like 12, 13% or so bigger. And then we talk about uh, the, and if you want to think of it in terms of expansion, because right, if we're talking about a hollow point, it can expand as well. The expansion is almost identical. We're talking about between 0.36 and 0.72 inches on a nine millimeter versus 0.4 and 0.76 inches on the, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, it's negligible. The difference is almost, almost not there at all. So, so if we're talking about size of hole, the difference between the two rounds is, is negligible at best. If we're talking about velocity, it's even more negligible. You know, on the nine millimeter, we're talking about 950 to 1400 uh, feet per uh, uh, feet per second. And if we're talking about the 40 Smith and West, we're talking about 900 to 1449. So, so almost the same. I mean, it's, it's, it's negligible at best. And if we took an average, they're probably identical. So, so the point is when we're talking about the amount of velocity transferred into the body, or if we're talking about the size of the hole made, the difference between the nine millimeter and the 40 Smith and Wesson is basically negligible. Yeah. But there's a huge difference, difference, differentiating factor uh, when we're talking about carrying these two guns and the opportunity you have to stop the threat. 
Yep. Now, here's another really important part of this, this article uh, from January 2016. He talks about the limitations of ballistic gel. And uh, many people will quote the work of Dr. Martin Fackler, who uh, did a lot of studies with ballistics and used ballistic uh, gelatin to, to uh, study a lot of this. But even Dr. Fackler uh, admittedly understood the limitations of ballistic gel. Uh, and, and this is a really good way of explaining it here. Uh, the article in question was an autopsy study by a medical examiner on torso-only shots with a retained bullet, noting that patients were excluded if bone was hit or there was overpenetration. This data was compared to gelatin data for the 9mm 147 grain Winchester jacketed hollow point. Gel demonstrated a 12 to 14 inch depth of penetration and the autopsy findings with the bullet only passing through soft tissue of a 10 to 17 inch penetration. The author's conclusion, based on comparison of data from living tissue penetration by the 9mm 147 grain bullet with test shots of the same bullet into gelatin, it is concluded that gelatin can be a useful predictor of this bullet's penetration and expansion characteristics in shots in the human torso. So keep in mind, what was eliminated? Anything that hit or struck a bone or overpenetrated or where the, bull, or where the uh, uh, bullet was not retained. And so what we had was a comparison of bullet reaction on tissue only, soft tissue only, and that that is a predictor. It can be a predictor uh, if you're using ballistic gelatin, that can be a predictor as well of how a bullet will perform in soft tissue only. You introduce bones, you introduce other organs or structures within the body, and that may not necessarily be the case. And so that is a limitation. A good summary of a lot of this discussion is towards the end of the second article where he says, Stopping power is a marketing tool and should be dropped from our discussions of ballistic performance until such time as ammunition effectiveness is measured by more means than just the results of gelatin and barrier tests. I think that's a pretty fair statement right there. Yeah, and, and I think the other kind of main point here, and, and he, he makes it, I, th- I don't know if, we, if you wanted to get to it, if we skipped over it on purpose, but the other main point here, yeah. and because he writes this, this article in the context of the FBI making a change in their policy to go, go to the nine millimeter. And, and so the kind of the main point he makes here is, well, if, if there's relatively negligible difference uh, ballistically, you know, in terms of stopping the threat, the physiology of, of impact of those two rounds, then what does make the difference? Well, it's obviously shot placement. It's what we're hitting. And shot placement may be a, f- a factor of two things. One is skill. And that's certainly a factor that, I mean, I, I don't mean to downplay that. Yeah, totally true, right? My ability under stress to put accurate shots on target matters. But the, the second factor related to shot placement is just number of opportunities to get the shot in the right place. If I get the opportunity to shoot my threat 10 times, versus five, I am twice as likely to hit somewhere, hit something that matters, to shut down the system, right? To go lights out. Or I'm, I'm going to probably make them bleed out twice as fast because I've punched twice as many holes in the tissue. So, so the, the, the key here, the, the argument being made is the FBI switched the nine millimeter because they understand this really important thing that having more rounds in the gun is the number one most impactful factor uh, related to stopping threats, having more opportunities to punch holes 
and and get the, you know punch the hole in the right place and or increase number of holes for faster bleed out. Yep. Oh, there's two quotes here that are really telling in this regard. Having more rounds in your pistols magazine increases the potential for accurate shots. And this other one, from a trauma surgeon's perspective, both the nine millimeter and the 40 caliber can wound, injure, incapacitate, or kill. However, shot placement is the best predictor of accomplishing the intended goals. I have treated patients with more than 20 holes in them that never caused enough tissue damage or bleeding to cause them to die. And I have treated patients with a single hole that did die. Remember, the discussion is the ability of a particular ammunition caliber with improved bullet characteristics to stop a threat, not living or dying, but simply to temporarily or permanently incapacitate the threat. And goes on to share a story of an officer-involved shooting where uh, you know, this guy had a 40 caliber, uh, he had shots in his chest and in his abdomen from 180 grain 40, but also he had rounds from 223 from an M4. It was discovered he had been shot 17 times with 11 rounds exiting his body. Despite these many wounds, he struggled with officers attempting to handcuff him before he died. I would point to the experience of Officer Grammons. I've shared that experience or that story before on the podcast. He's the guy in Chicago a few years ago that had to shoot his uh, aggressor like 13 or 14 times with a 45 caliber Glock 21 before that guy finally stopped being a threat. So anyway... I know we've had this discussion on the podcast before, but I thought it was worthwhile to bring, you know, since this, this article came back up to my attention, Jacob, I thought this would be really good content to, uh, to share again on the podcast. And, and this gives some really good specific uh, examples, but also it's backed by this guy's personal experience as a trauma surgeon who has seen and treated many gunshot wounds that have come through uh, his, his operating room. Yeah. I, I mean, for me, um, and I, I think, Listeners know where I stand. Like I, I carry a nine. I carry the nine millimeter because I'm perfectly happy to satisfy my F-350 stopping power with F-150 stopping power, so I can have double the ammo capacity. And and that's just where I I live on this. And I'm I'm not so uh, I don't know what's the word prideful or egotistical as to believe that you know with one shot I can stop any threat. You know I mean I've been in force and force you know encounter uh, trainings you know and, and in those situations man it's like all bets are off the table, <laughs> you know, when, when your threat is diving behind cover and you're trying to get shots on them and you're also trying to, you know, stay safe, all bets are off the table. And I would like to have the maximum number of opportunities I can uh, to put holes in the right place. Absolutely. Guys, uh, viewing or listening on Facebook uh, live today, uh, what, what are your thoughts on this? Do you, do you agree? Do you disagree? Do you have any experience to back uh, any of this up? Um, and I see Spencer has joined us now. Matthew's just popping in, by the way. Uh, Matthew Marister just popping in here. So glad to have you, Matthew, now. Uh, a little late to the party, I might add, but uh, we're always glad to have you. Uh, Matthew, I'm sure, would have some uh, opinions about uh, this this concept of stopping power. Matthew carries a 40. So, you know, he really is late to this, <laughs> the, to this party. Um, yeah, so so all in, I, I think there's a couple important things here. One would be, you know, when you're out there selecting a gun, these are factors that you have to think about. You have to think about stopping power. You have to think about ammo capacity. You also need to, you know, greatly understand how critical your ability 
uh, is to actually get shots on target, right? I mean, if, if, if you're just spraying bullets around, not only is that a safety concern, but that's a serious concern relative to actually stopping your threat. And, you know, threats move, they're dynamic, they're, they turn, they, they, they move, they're up, they're down, they're hiding behind things. And so we can't just make these easy assumptions that I'm going to carry around a five shot, whatever, and I, I'm going to take them down with one shot. Now, I will also add this, and I think this is an important thing. Anytime we talk about these discussions of, you know, what is the best thing to carry or use, and I always like to remind people that something is still always better than nothing. If you're carrying around a two-round Derringer and, and your friend ever makes fun of you, you know what? If they're not carrying a gun, you already are doing better than they are. And if you have to carry around the two-shot Derringer uh, in order to carry a gun at all, then I say carry the Dane Derringer, you know? Something is definitely always still better than nothing. Yeah, that is true. But if you're going to carry something, why not just carry something better than a two-shot Derringer? <laughs> Okay, I can't think of an example where the two-shot Derringer actually makes any sense whatsoever. But the, 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 hopefully the point is still, is still valid and valid, valid right? Assuming you're not doing anything unsafe, carrying a gun beats not carrying one. Absolutely. That is for sure. Jeff says, by the way, hello. Glad to have you, Jeff, uh, chiming in here towards the end of the episode. Um, so anyway... We're going to probably start wrapping it up here. We do have some picks of the week. Uh, I don't think we got to picks of the week last week, so I apologize for that. I definitely wanted to make sure we had them lined up for for this episode this week. And also, by the way, I hope everyone had a wonderful Christmas. Uh, Maybe you're taking some time off. we got the New Year's coming up, and uh, I hope everyone is safe and is able to enjoy their New Year's as well. Uh, So, you know, it can be a crazy time out there sometimes. There's inevitably we will read about some sort of break-in, robbery, carjacking, something that will, I mean, it it happens all the time, but inevitably we will read about something that happens on New Year's Eve. We'll be sharing that on next week's podcast, I'm sure. Yeah, the Paulson home goes to DEFCON 3 on on New Year's Eve. It's just one of those days where we're more cautious. (laughs) So pick of the week, Riley, you ready for me? Sure, fire away. Well, mine just kicked on. I just heard it. My pick of the week is a mini fridge. <laughs> yeah, I thought you'd laugh. You know how many mini fridges I have in my house? Three. I love having a mini fridge. I have a mini fridge in my bedroom. I have a mini fridge in my office. And I have a mini fridge in my basement. And, you know, that's above and beyond the fridge that's in my kitchen and the two freezers that are in my garage. I like cold stuff, apparently. So, I just, man, I love having a mini fridge. Uh, My life is greatly enhanced in a positive way when I have a cold beverage closer to where I am sitting. So if you want to take a card from my book, you can be a lazier person like me and you can get a mini fridge somewhere in your home. And if the power goes out and you don't have a generator, life might suck. I guess, I guess I'll be drinking warm water. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, I mean, the vast majority of these of my mini fridges just contain beverages. That's all it is. It's just liquid because I like cold liquid to drink. What can I say? <laughs> By the way, Jeff uh, pipes in and asks, what grain hollow point is best? And he clarifies, he's, he's indicating nine millimeter. What grain? So how heavy of a bullet is best? And now typically in nine millimeter, you have... 115, 124, 147. And, and there are a couple out there that are like in the 130s, like uh, your critical duty, critical defense from Hornady, I think are one. they have 135s that are an option. So I'm going to take a stab at that, Jeff. Uh, 
number one, based on what we are reading in that those articles, I actually kind of missed out. I think if you if you were just barely time, ch- uh, chiming in or tuning into the uh, podcast today, uh, we shared two articles. Will be in the show notes of today's episode from uh, Doctor Vale, uh, trauma surgeon. These are on policemag.com, and I, I would say based on our conversation today, I would say it doesn't really matter. Now, me personally, I like the mid-weight uh, bullets, uh, 124 or 135 grain bullets, somewhere in that range. I like, I'm okay with 147s, but I, I definitely carry something heavier than the 115s. Um, if you want to ask why, I do feel like that you probably get a little more consistent performance from a heavier bullet and consistency is key. Now, will that make a big difference in terms of stopping power as we've been discussing today based on Dr. Vale's points? Maybe not, but I, I, I do like those mid-weight bullets. Yeah, I, I feel like you still get solid velocity, but a little bit heavier bullet I do think performs more consistently. I won't add anything to that except to say ditto. Uh, here's what I have in my gun. It's the six-hour Elite Performance V-Crowns, 124 grain, 9 millimeter. Yeah. And that's what I buy. That's what I put in my gun. So ditto, ditto to Riley. That's a, great, that's a great bullet right there as well. So my pick this week, by the way, is the Mini Click Tough Rider pen. And so I'm showing it here on my screen. And if I share my screen now... I've got it pulled up here somewhere. Let's see, Tough Rider. There we go. Uh, T-U-F-F, go? Tough Rider. That's right. T-U-F-F, Rider, R-W-R-I-T-E-R. Oh, writer uh, as in writing. Yeah, yeah, Tough Rider. Here we go, toughwriter.com. I finally got the screen share to work. And so I've got the mini click, which is these ones that are kind of in the middle of the screen that you see there. Uh, but any of these pens I imagine are great pens. Now they're not exactly cheap. Uh, so, you know, this is not something that you're just going to run out to the store and buy on a whim. Most likely uh, you see some of these mini clicks are, you know, 85, hundred, $115. Uh, that's, that tends to be the norm for a lot of their pens from tough, tough writer, but as might be indicated by the name, Tough Rider means they're tough. These suckers are built, uh, they only use steel and aluminum. I think on this one, the body of the pen is aluminum. The tip here is steel, at least it feels like it is to me. Uh, this back, you know, the the button and the cap or whatever, the clicker, this is steel. You know, it, it's it's a solidly built pen and it writes amazing. Um, that's because it's, it is just using a... Uh, what do you call it? It's the space pen. Um, there you go. The Fisher space pen uh, ink cartridge. These are great cartridges. If you ever had a pen that had one of these in them, they write super smooth and they write in any angle, any condition, hot, cold, freezing, it doesn't matter. So, but the quality of the build on this pen is, is astounding. And this is intended to be kind of a tactical pen. Um, it's not as tactical looking as some out there that you might be familiar with, but could you definitely use this as a defensive weapon? Absolutely. It's got the, the stoutness to it. It's solid. It's strong. It's going to leave a mark if you had to use that in some fashion. Quality pen, check out toughwriter.com. Uh, appreciate them. Uh, let me check one of these out and do a little review on it. I'll, I'll add that a, a nice pen like that is a TSA approved impact weapon. Yeah. So there's something to be said for something that you could use in a pinch to defend yourself with on a plane. 
Yep. And while there are some tactical pens out there that you might could get in trouble with because it very clearly is a stabbing instrument, this one is totally going to fly. There's nothing about this pen that is going to... Nice pun, Riley. Totally going to fly. Good work. (laughs) You know, I I love my puns. (laughs) So let's see here. Matthew says... um, Oh, we got Gary popping in. He looks like he's viewing. So we were talking to Gary earlier in the episode. Uh, He says, team never quit. Frangible ammo is also fabulous. Appreciate you sharing that, Gary. Matthew says, I think that different grains can function differently on various guns. I know some guns don't seem to work well with heavier or lighter grains, but wound ballistics, probably not a whole lot of difference. Just my two cents. Appreciate you uh, piping in there, Matthew. And that that, that is a key point. That's a really valid point. We should have said that that your bullet performs consistently and reliably in your particular gun. And some guns do have problems with different weights of guns or bullets. Yep. That's I'm glad, I'm yep. glad he threw that out there. That's why we pay him the big bucks. All those articles <laughs> <for us stuff. laughs> awesome. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you, Jacob. A reminder, by the way, that today's podcast episode sponsors are guardian nation. Go check out the nation at guardiannation.com And also, Next level trainings, cert line of cert pistols. Uh, Jacob, I think you've got the compact there, the pocket pistol. Yeah, did I see? Yeah, it's right here. I've been playing with it throughout. Yeah, Yeah, I've been trying to do a little bit more of my dry fire with this lately because I have been carrying my Glock 43 more frequently than I used to. So yeah, that's the uh, that's the pocket pistol right there. Great stuff. Great gun. Uh, You know, here's the full size version. So we're big fans. Check them out. Conceal. Check this out too. Oh, sure. Yeah. I was going to show that the pocket pistol can come with two different base plates. And so if you're listening to the podcast, you can go see this online. If you're live on Facebook, you can see this on my camera right now, but it can come with this kind of flat base plate. And also what I call the pinky extension base plate, which is really nice so that you can kind of match this to be as like the gun you carry as possible. Totally. Good stuff. There you go. Appreciate your support of our sponsors and we appreciate your support of the podcast Thanks, everyone, for everything you do that makes this possible. We are now into it. 186 episodes. I never imagined we would get to that point. I hope you guys also, those of you who are viewing or joining in on Facebook Live, hope that you enjoyed as well and would like to see this continue. If so, let us know. If you have any questions that you would like to see answered on the podcast, anything you'd like to comment about or share with us, shoot us an email at podcast at concealedcarry.com. Jacob and I see those emails personally come directly to our inboxes. Uh, We both get them. So one one of us or both of us will, will, will get to those and respond to you or answer them directly here on the podcast each week. So once again, a reminder to be safe out there with the holidays and everything upon us. Uh, We do hope that you are safe, both in terms of your physical, uh, tactical safety, but also even in things with your driving, as certainly we hate to see if anybody were to get hurt, uh, uh, you know, just traveling to see family or friends or whatever it is during this special time of the year. So with that, we will sign off and a reminder to train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care, everyone. Reminder that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Concealed Carry Podcast, Concealed Carry Inc., ConcealedCarry.com, and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm-related incidents and laws. But things could be different where you live, or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast.